Hi, I'm Sean Perrin, and you're listening to episode 67 of the Clarinet Podcast, the show where I discuss all that's new and neat with clarinet with the neatest people in the industry. On today's episode of the podcast, I'm thrilled to be speaking with the legendary Charles Nydick. We talk about his upcoming concert series in New York City called the Wah Concert Series, and he shares some incredible insight not only into his performance of these pieces, but their history, and specifically some really interesting conversation about the Elliot Carter piece called Gras, which will open up the program today, and also the Mozart Clarinet Concerto, for which he is releasing his own annotated version. I really hope to have him back about that in the spring. The Clarinet Podcast is brought to you in part by the support of its listeners, and today I'd like to thank Patreon backers Yuri S., Garrett H., and Susan A. Patreon supporters at the gold level will get access to an extended lightning round version of today's episode with almost five minutes of extra conversation. If you'd like to learn how you can support the production of the Clarinet Podcast on an ongoing basis, please see www.clarinet.com Patreon. Show notes for this and all other episodes of the podcast are available on our website at clarinet.com. And now I bring you my conversation with Charles Nydick after a brief message from our sponsor. Thank you so much for listening. Sanding, shaping, balancing. For centuries, mastering your instrument meant mastering these crafts too. But now, D'Addario is refining craftsmanship for the 21st century by refining their reeds and mouthpieces with the world's most innovative techniques so you can spend less time sanding, shaping, and balancing, and more time perfecting your own craft. To learn more about the new era of craftsmanship from D'Addario Woodwinds, visit daddario.com woodwinds. So I'm here with Charles Nydick today. Charles, welcome to the Clarinet Podcast. Thank you very much. It's my pleasure to be here. So you have an upcoming concert and performance series called the Wah Series. What does this mean and what are some of the music you'll be playing on this series? Wah is a Japanese word which means many things, actually. It means harmony. It means uh, togetherness. It means... uh, completeness, actually in other things as well. Uh, it's a very kind of philosophical world. So when Japanese uh, people hear it, they have many, many associations. So we thought especially uh, since this series is very multifaceted, this title would be very appropriate to it. This uh, season will have five concerts, actually. Um, I should say that we had our preseason last year. We uh, basically 
checked out whether this would be a, a viable concept, plus whether the venue, which is the Tenry Cultural Center in New York, would, would also work out. And everything worked out very well. So this year we're beginning our series. And uh, the five concerts will actually have five, uh, I should say, themes. So the first concert is on September 29th, and that's titled Old and New. And it's composers who should not be forgotten. The second one on November 10th is called Emotion and Intellect, and there uh, we'll present the works of uh, Max Reger and Robert Schumann. December 16th, which I, I uh, gave the title, The Originality of Greatness, will be a concert in memory of Elliot Carter, this is be the, this will be the fifth uh, year after his death, actually, and uh, then March eleventh, say hidden masterpieces will uh, feature especially two composers from the Soviet Union, whose music. Uh, was actually uh, completely forgotten for a while. One of them is Mrs. Weinberg, who's a Polish composer, who has recently uh, experienced a, a resurgence of interest in his work. The other one is uh, Alexander Lukshin, and Lukshin is still a composer who is virtually unknown in, to the public although Shostakovich had pronounced him a genius back in 1940. Wow. Um, the last concert is a, will be a concert of the New York Woodwind Quintet, uh, which I'm a member of. That's May 4th, and I title that Celebrating Wins. We will play Carter, mm -hmm. the second Woodwind Quintet, that which he wrote for us. And uh, we will also play some uh, transcriptions, which our horn player, uh, William Purvis, made of um, madrigals by Monteverdi and Gesualdo. And uh, other things like uh, an arrangement of uh, Mozart string quartet and et cetera, et cetera. So you mentioned throughout these five concerts that it's music you think should not be forgotten or the composer should not be forgotten. Is this because of the, the personal collect connection you have with some of these composers or the sheer value of the music or the music itself? Or what, what do you think um, brings it to that well, prominence? I, actually, this is interesting because it's only the first concert which I actually titled Composers Who Should Not Be Forgotten. Oh, but yeah. In a, in a certain way, it does refer to all of them. And it's something that I, I had not... Uh, really paid attention to before, but you're absolutely right. Uh, it is that way. And, well, of course, the music of Elliot Carter is very close to me, as uh, he was a, as a person as well. We were very good friends. He was a big influence on my 
uh, musical development, I would say. And so that is a that is a, a personal connection. Uh, other other works um, do not have quite that connection. Although I will be playing uh, something of Ursula Memlock, who is a wonderful composer, who uh, originally from Germany but emigrated to the United States and taught at the Manhattan School for a long time, and I knew her quite well as. Uh, although it was not quite as close as I was with Elliot Carter. And she has written for my wife, Ayako Oshima, and myself, she has written uh, several duets. And we will be playing those on the, the first concert as well. This, we're composers who should not be forgotten. I should uh, perhaps talk a little bit about the works on that concert. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah, you know, before you do that, though, I'm really curious. Yeah. You mentioned that Elliot Carter had a big influence on your playing style and your, your musicality and your music career. Um, what was yes. it like working with him? Uh, that's a very large question. I, must say. <laughs> I imagine. I imagine. Yeah. Um, so I should say, first of all, that he was one of the most brilliant and also one of the kindest people I've ever known. We were, uh, my wife and I were very close to him and we would visit him as much as we could when we were in New York and we'd have uh, wonderful conversations about music, about philosophy, about politics, you, you name it, basically. Uh, and working with him was always very uh, illuminating and very interesting because his ideas about his own pieces, for instance, were incredibly precise incredibly clear and always had to do with drama and expression. Mm -hmm. You see, so people think of his music as being intellectual and complicated, but he was never concerned with the technique of his own compositions when he was uh, listening to them or commenting on, on performances or rehearsals or trying to help with our own uh, interpretations, but he was always concerned with the dramatic flow of the composition. Mm -hmm. And that's uh, something that I came not only to appreciate very much, but has become my major concern when I'm actually performing. Could you elaborate on that a little bit? I mean, I've played a couple pieces by Carter, and the one that comes to mind right now is Gras, especially because it's on your first program, or sorry, it's on the, which program did I just see it on? Third the program. December section, yeah. It's on the third yeah, program. So you mentioned that he's very, very sort of precise, and I, I do recall that from the dynamic markings especially. I, I remember being surprised you would see, in some instances, up to five or ten dynamics in just a few notes. Um, but yet, in a way, as you learned the piece and played the piece, sort of a, a musicality kind of unfolded that was really interesting and sort of unparalleled in, in other music I'd encountered. So I wonder if you could sort of expand on how to interpret the, uh, that preciseness and, and find the music within, in a sense, that can be explained. Yes, I can do that very well. Uh, first of all, it's important to understand that Elliot Carter, in a certain sense, personified instruments always. So mm -hmm. in other words, he, he always thought of characters. So the music that he wrote 
were, was like uh, theatrical uh, uh, compositions, like like plays, for instance, and the instruments would be characters in the play. So when you have one instrument, like gra, he would set up not simply one character, but different characters. And in this particular piece, he has two characters. Mm-hmm. You see, and he, and he marks the, uh, the sort of uh, tempo expression uh, mark at the beginning of the piece, Gidibizoso, which means capricious, actually. Um, Gra itself means play or playful in Polish. And he wrote it for Ludoslavsky's 80th birthday. Ludoslavsky, a great Polish composer, was a good friend of Elliot Carter. Mm-hmm. Um, now, what, so we, he sets up an opposition of two characters. So in this piece, you have a character which is sentimental and then a character which is capricious. And he separates them both by rhythm and by dynamics. So when you see different dynamics, you can think of different characters. I like that. And then the interplay is, is often happening kind of at the same time, even you skip between the two. Yes. Now, let's take the very opening of that, where you, you start with F and then A flat, long notes and triplets, and that, that has a crescendo to a mezzo forte. And then after that, you have two short notes, a low E and then B flat, and they are forte. Now, when I first came to him, this was when he had just written the piece, 1993, and uh, I was going to do the premiere recording and, and uh, to play it in, in many places, and it had never been played, and he had never heard it before, in fact, just in his own mind. I played the opening and he immediately stopped me and said, no, that the first little phrase that only goes to mezzo forte and then you have forte. You should not blend the two together hmm. because they are different characters. Yeah. You see, so this is the kind of precision that he, 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 he has in the music, but it's in his mind as, as well. This, so you have this opposition of characters. And then what is interesting in the piece, of course, is that as the piece goes on, they, the characters begin to be less separated and they sort of morph one into another. And uh, uh, that's very interesting to uh, try to accomplish when you're performing the piece. Now, one more thing he does, actually, I should say more than one more thing. There are a few more things, but one important thing is that he uses dynamics to show phrase shape. So if he, mm. so you can have crescendos and diminuendos, they show where the phrase is going, where it's coming from, for instance. And that's why also let's take that opening, which goes to mezzo forte, and then the forte right after that means that phrase 
ends on the mezzo forte and you have a new phrase beginning after so they should not be put together that way uh, one other thing is that he controls tempo by notating in different rhythmic values so the piece itself if you look at it carefully is really written in threes everything is in a three I can say it's in the language of three to in a way so so you can have one two three one two three <laughs> one yes. two three etc etc you see and you if you follow dynamics you can see that quite clearly in the work itself uh, now, when he writes, let's say, something in fives there, he, he may write in fives, but it just means that you're actually playing for that moment in a, a faster tempo. Mm -hmm. He, he then, had a term for this kind of stuff. Um, I think he called it metric modulation. Yes, metric modulation is a little bit different because there you have a, a, a time signature which changes, but you have a, a definite relationship between the two tempi. And you will actually see that once, or here, I should say, once you're in the new tempo, that you, you, that, that tempo was actually uh, in the old, music in the music that was before that in the different tempo but not in the foreground but in the background yes you see so that's a little more complicated uh what, what i'm talking about is it is what he calls uh rhythmic crescendi and diminuendi mm, yes yes which which would be basically like getting faster and getting slower but he controls them by rhythm by changing rhythmic values Way. So this is all, uh, in a certain way, complicated to explain, but very easy to show by playing. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's some fascinating insight into that piece. Um, I, I love how the fact that you have the sort of the circle concept, the wah concept, and, and you know, I would feel that this piece as well, for example, ties into the emotion and in intellect category for sure. <laughs> that's true also. You're absolutely yeah, right. So it's interesting yeah. programming you've got here for sure. As far as interesting programming, um, it says on your press release here that each performance is to include uh, visual art and exciting culinary offerings. I find this very interesting, and I, I'm wondering how you came about making this decision and how you feel that these sort of um, decisions affect the music and, and the, the concert experience. Okay. Well, in terms of visual art, the venue which we have chosen this is Tenry Cultural Center. Um, it's on on Thirteenth Street and Sixth Avenue in Manhattan. Uh, is also an art gallery. Oh, wonderful! You see, so there is will so artists exhibit their work there, and uh, sometimes we we like last year the last uh, uh, of our. Uh, preseason concerts, we actually coordinated with the art of 
actually the wife of Robert Mann, who was the first violinist of the Juilliard Quartet for 50 years. And uh, he's already says, celebrated, I believe, his 96th birthday. And his wife, uh, Lucy Rowan Mann, is a wonderful artist who has never really been exhibited. So we exhibited her work and actually uh, formed a concert around it as well. So we will do that. But uh, most of the concerts will be simply in the art gallery. So there will be art there, but it's not necessarily connected specifically with the program that we're doing. Now, in terms of, of the food, the culinary thing, my, my wife is, for each concert, is constructing a menu which in a certain sense is going to be connected with the music. Oh, wow. And so we'll have the concert, and then uh, the, after that reception with, uh, with these, uh, as we said, culinary delights. So for people in New York City, this is a, a very interesting opportunity to come and come and see these concerts then. I, I suspect that I will be envious of all who live there. <laughs> yes, well, please come if you can. Absolutely. If, you have, if you're ever thinking of coming to New York, maybe you can make your time coincide with one of the concerts that we're having. Yeah, and of course, I'll be putting the, the information for these concerts up on the show notes at clarinet.com. And um, I believe if there's a ticket website, I can send a link along to that as well. And it would be very yes. easy to just sort of purchase a ticket and, and go. Yes, that's uh, everything is on the website itself and will be in also the, the Facebook page for the, for the concert series. Maybe I should, should go over some of the other... Uh, works on the concert. Um, yeah, let's go over some of the other ones. I actually did want to talk as well about, um, in a way, you're such a champion of, well, not in a way, you are such a champion of, of music ranging from Mozart to Elliot Carter and everything in between. And this program is surely, you know, hinting at that, that musical skill and talent. What tips do you have for people who want to become more musically versatile? Some musicians sort of end up in one genre or the next. Well, first of all, you need to have curiosity. That's very important so that you're not simply content with a you know, handful of pieces which are very well known, but you want to uh, find out about uh, both pieces, old pieces and new pieces, which uh, perhaps should be known, as we said. Then... Also, to, uh, I would say, to listen to a wide variety of music mm. and uh, to a wide variety of performers as well, not simply to listen to clarinetists, but to listen to, to singers, to uh, great orchestral performances, of course, to opera, to... Uh, great string players, great pianists, and also to uh, wonderful uh, musicians from other walks of life, from jazz musicians 
from also uh, folk music from different parts of the world, from Indian classical music, uh, music from Japan, from Korea, from China, etc. Uh, it's just to to expand what you appreciate as music. I think this is uh, very, very important. So that's, those are the kind of initial steps. And then it's important to have courage to try new things hmm. as well to uh, present uh, music that maybe you, you believe in, but is not uh, generally uh, well known. For instance, so in this concert, on these concert programs in particular, you have included a lot of wonderful new music, including some which you're saying has in a way been rediscovered, um, but also That's some right. older pieces. That's right. As far as versatility within the same program or set of programs. How does one achieve that stylistically with fluidity? Um, experience. I think that's important. And you, you need to first have the experience playing works of different styles, of different periods. And then you need the technique to be able to switch from uh, one kind of music to another. And I've also done programs, and I did a program last year, although they, where I started with uh, period instruments, with instruments from the classical period, and then worked my way up to new music. And that's a, kind of an extreme version of what we're talking about now. Um, with all this in mind, though, what is most important to uh, realize, I believe very firmly, is that there are universal attributes to music which have never changed. And they, that has to do with emotion with, uh, with drama, with the point of communicating something which affects your audience, which the audience can participate in and become moved by. Hmm. And that should be the case, whether you're playing the most recent wild thing or the very early piece and um, one thing also to realize is that when you're playing older music, at one time, that music was new music. Yes, yeah. So you have to present it with the kind of vitality as if this is something new. Yeah, that's very true. Actually, we forget that although, you know, the music has been played maybe many, many thousands of times, that performance is still fresh. That's right. Now, if we... we take since uh, we're basically uh, focusing on the clarinet in, in this interview, 
if we take the Mozart clarinet concerto, which is the most famous work, well-known work for the clarinet, we have to realize that when Mozart wrote it, it was completely revolutionary. Yes. Uh, he, he wrote it for an instrument, first of all, which did not exist maybe even two years before he wrote it, the piece. And that instrument was able to play notes which were not uh, really practical on earlier clarinets. And that enabled Mozart to do things like write the first melody in the low register. Also, there are certain harmonic progressions in the piece which, although today, they seem totally normal at the time were actually rather shocking. Mm -hmm. So this is why knowledge is actually also important when we are performing, because if we understand those progressions, for instance, we can play them in a way which in a certain sense, reestablishes the fact that they were, are shocking. Yeah, make it clear. You see. And then the, it, the piece becomes much uh, more multifaceted. Then it, it's no longer, you know, simply a nice little clarinet piece, although it's not at all little. The, the clarinet concerto, I believe, was the longest piece he wrote that doesn't have actually uh, repeats. The longest instrumental work that he wrote without repeats. It's very big work. Uh, the other thing is when we, we look at some of the passages in the low register and we see that he wrote a melody using notes which didn't exist on the clarinet before the instrument which Anton Stadler presented to him and, and uh, basically told him that, yes, you can write for these notes. We also, if we have knowledge, we can understand how to play these passages because on the old instruments, let's say one note, in this case, very famous case would be we have the B to A sharp, dee da dee da dee da dee da, that way. And, and Anton Stadler's instrument must have had a key for B. Actually, we know that for a fact, that it must have had a key for B. But it did not have the key for the A sharp. So mm. the B was clear, the A sharp was very fuzzy. Now Mozart knew this, and it's important for us to know this so that we can play it in a way which is kind of mysterious. So you're and saying that, he wrote for the instrument that had kind of a, I don't want to call it a built-in flaw, but it had sort of this characteristic that would make it sound that way. That's right. That's very that's interesting. Right. And not only that, you see his orchestration, you look at the orchestration. Let's say the, 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 our B flat or A sharp on the A clarinet is a concert G natural, mm -hmm. right? Now, Mozart hides that note, which is fuzzy, because he has the first violin at that time playing an A, playing 
a G sharp. Do you think that some of these things we should be trying to emulate or do you think that if yes. Mozart had, yeah, okay. Yes. You see, I think that if, if Mozart had known a different instrument, he would have written a different piece. Mm, interesting. So do you think in some way, cause this, we're kind of going into a territory now, which pianists have been in a really long time as far as playing Bach. Um, yes. do you think that it's in some way incorrect or kind of misguided to play some of this music on a modern instrument? No, okay. I don't think so. You see what the old instrument period instruments do is they, they, they give you information. Mm -hmm. Modern instruments in a sense are neutral. So you can play in many different ways. You simply have to have the imagination and knowledge to do that. Mm. You see, but they will not necessarily lead you in the right direction by themselves. That's so interesting. Yeah. So for instance, just in, in this passage, uh, which I'm, I'm explaining about, which, uh, I'm explaining now because it, it's really interesting because this is something that when the, the piece was published in 1801 was actually criticized, this one passage, was saying that, no, this is not practical to play. Because even at that time, many uh, people did not have an instrument which was able to play those notes with enough clarity. Hmm. You see, but but it, n- now uh, we have no problem doing that. So if you don't know that, you can play them both very forcefully, which you could not do at the time. It, the instrument didn't, simply didn't work. And then you play them very forcefully, and then you get this very unpleasant dissonance between the G natural of the in the clarinet, the the written A sharp and the G-sharp in the violin. So if you listen carefully, you think, wow, this is kind of lousy. <laughs> but if you, but if you, if you know what Mozart was doing, was actually hiding the note which was not so great, mm-hmm. then it could be very beautiful. So this is extremely fascinating, and I'm wondering, do you have any suggestions for the 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 parts in the piece which extend out of the normal range of a clarinet and end up kind of being broken up um, and can yes. sound a bit choppy? Yes. Yeah. I I have I mean I have many suggestions for about that, and maybe I should make a plug because I will be coming out with an edition of the concerto pretty soon. Oh wow. Uh, it's been a long time in the making, and, and uh, I apologize to those who know about it and have been waiting for it. Uh, Sorry to interrupt, but by an addition, do you yes. mean like it's annotated? Yes, my, oh. my annotation. And I will Wonderful. have in that, well, I will have many notes where I explain different possibilities of recomposing certain places. Mm. And, and I'm hoping that that will give uh, people who are. Uh, learning the piece, the the courage, actually, not simply even to adopt what I'm suggesting, but perhaps to try something else. Because I can't say that I I'm I'm going to present every possibility for recom- recomposing for the normal clarinet. And do you think that with, I'm really excited for that? By the way, that's going to be fantastic. What's the suspected release date for that? 
uh, I will say it, it will probably be in the spring now. I know that my, my publisher is, is it's, it should be finished within the next month. And, but then in terms of release, there are, I guess, better times and worse times to release it. So that I'm not sure about. But. <laughs> well, you know what we should do? Maybe instead of diving deeper into that right now, maybe we should reconnect in the spring and have another conversation. That would be great. Yes. Let's do that then. So yeah. getting, getting back to the, the concert series then, maybe we should quickly discuss some of these lesser known Soviet composers that you've rediscovered the music. Of course. Okay. This is... <clears throat> On, on the the concert on March 11th. And one of the pieces is a sonata by Mstislav Weinberg. Um, this is a piece which actually has uh, become more well-known, though I must say that I was probably one of the first people to rediscover it. It's uh, quite an amazing work which he wrote in 1945. Mstislav Weinberg was a Polish composer, Polish-Jewish composer, who instead of when, when the, I should say, when the Nazis invaded Poland, instead of escaping to the West, he escaped to the East. Hmm. And uh, he, he went to the Soviet Union, and became the best friend of Shostakovich. They would actually play each other's pieces for when they were composing them and uh, criticize each other's work. It was very interesting. And Weinberg was influential in many ways uh, to Shostakovich. Right? And of course, the opposite as well. Now, Weinberg, however, was from the 1970s on, pretty much completely neglected in uh, the Soviet Union and completely forgotten in the West. I studied in Moscow. I was there for three years, from 1975 to 1978. And Weinberg was alive in the Soviet Union, but I did not know of his existence. That's quite amazing. Wow. That's right. Uh, the piece is, is, is uh, wonderfully powerful and fascinating. He wrote it right at the end of the Second World War, and it has both elements of tragedy and, I should say in a certain way, of final redemption. And it's... Uh, one wonderfully profound work. The other work we, we are doing is by Alexander Lakshin. Lakshin was also a composer who had been close to Shostakovich. Um, as I mentioned earlier, Shostakovich had pronounced him a genius in 1940. Now, Lakshin was also basically uh, put down by the Soviet authorities and his music was not performed at all. I did meet him. He lived in Moscow, so I did meet him when I was a student there because the conductor, Rudolf Barshai, 
of, of the, who founded the Moscow Chamber Orchestra, which at that time was a, quite a remarkable group, uh, was a champion. It was perhaps the only champion of Lakshin's music. And he invited me to his house, which was a tiny little apartment in Moscow. This, uh, Lakshin was this very skinny man, elderly uh, man, uh, but with tremendously intense eyes and someone who was very opinionated and very knowledgeable. I will be playing uh, the clarinet quintet, which he wrote in 1954. And that was right after the death of Stalin. Mm. Stalin had squashed him completely. I would say, and one reason why was because Lukshin was a champion of both Stravinsky and Mahler. Mm. And he was the most knowledgeable person um, with regard to those two composers in the 1930s, 1940s, uh, into the 1950s, and uh, very often he knew the works simply by smuggled scores, which he read. They were no because there were no performances of the, of the the works of those composers. It sounds so crazy nowadays to be smuggling scores. <laughs> That's right. It's very crazy, but it it was definitely the case. So when you say uh, squashed, you mean squashed musically or politically or both? Both. He was, he was uh, forbidden to teach at, at the Moscow Conservatory. Wow. He was, uh, his membership in the uh, Composers Union, which is very important, was terminated, you know, things like that. Uh, he, he often was uh, not well, and that saved him from going to prison but he was kind of informally put under house arrest in a way. Um, and the, this piece, which he wrote in 1954, is fascinating because it combines music of Mahler and Stravinsky in a very unique way. And, and I believe that it's uh, one of the great masterpieces of the 20th century. So I'll be playing it with the Parker Quartet, uh, which is one of my very favorite uh, young quartets. We have begun to collaborate on several uh, projects, and I'm very happy that they can play on this series. All three of these pieces on this uh, Hidden Masterpieces program, they seem to have interesting publication dates historically. Um, yes. So like the, the Weinberg, um, 1945, of course, was the end of World War II. And then That's the right. Lakshin, 1954, you're saying was the death of Stalin. That's, uh, that's right. And then the last one, 1989, that's very close to the end of the Soviet Union. Do you think that these that's publication right. dates have anything to do with the fact that those events had just taken place? Like, did the death of Stalin influence the release yes. of this piece? Yes, for sure. Wow. And uh, I would say in the term, in terms of Lobanov, Vasily Lobanov, who's also 
uh, someone I knew very well, uh, and he is uh, someone who I believe should be an important composer, but is also hardly known. Uh, he was writing right before this piece, right before the Berlin Wall came down, and and uh, basically the the Soviet Union imploded. Uh, but the, the Berlin Wall was 1980. Some of our uh, it's funny because yeah. some of our uh, listeners are going to be yeah. much younger now. I always okay, forget. That, right. <laughs> I always forget that this is this is not uh, as recent as it seems. But so just for those who aren't completely aware, the Berlin Wall fell in 1990, and the Soviet Union was one year after that. I think that basically that's right. Yeah. So yeah, that's right. Uh, but this was at this was at the time of of uh, Gorbachev. So it was at the, at the time where people in the Soviet Union were uh, very hopeful for change, which is interesting that time. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, what happened after that, after when the Soviet Union Yeltsin came in, there was uh, a tremendous, uh, well, first of all, there was tremendous devaluation of currency. There, there was a great resurgence of poverty. And so many people left at that time, including Lobanov. Hmm. And where did he leave to? To, to Germany. Oh. He lived to Ila. And then... Uh, he made his uh, living as a, you know, playing the piano and teaching piano. That's, uh, but this is such wonderful so, history, interesting history about these these two composers. Um, you're saying that they're they were almost forgotten, or that you're trying to make sure they aren't forgotten in a way. Um, where can one learn more about these two if they're so well hidden from us? <laughs> well, what's what's interesting now is that you can get so much information from the uh, internet. Mm, yes. You see. So it, before, it would have been very difficult to find information, but now you, it, you just Google them, and you can, you can, you know, if you start, you can find more and more information. Even the rarest things are online these days. <laughs> oh, I, th I think that's fantastic. Yes. You know, what's, what's, what's great is that now you have online many manuscripts which yes. were very difficult to find before, and now it's it's so easy to find them. So I I really hope that you know music students, people who are interested in music, even uh, you know amateurs who who love music, will avail themselves of of this incredibly uh, wonderful opportunity to find. Uh, so many things, which uh, before would have taken tremendous effort. Oh, it is completely amazing. And I, I have a funny story actually about the Elliot Carter piece when I was learning it when I was a student. Um, and uh, I remember when I tell my students now this, they always laugh and they can't understand it. Like, well, why didn't you just Google it? But so what happened was towards the end of the first page, there's a rather obscure term that means, um, I think it sort of means the literal translation is at your own pace. And yes. when I was first learning this piece, I thought 
through some sort of screw up with my <laughs> translation in my head that it meant as fast as possible. Uh, and so yeah. I had been practicing this this madly for a long time before I eventually was one day in my practice room. I was like, I need to look up exactly what this word means and went to the library and found the the Grove Dictionary or whatever I happened to look it up in. And that was about an hour of effort. And I found That's out right. and I, I saved myself a lot of practice and felt very silly. But but the question always comes up, well, why didn't you just Google it? Well, we didn't always have this amazing resource. That's right. You know? Yeah. Yeah. What amazes me is that I have so many students who don't bother to Google yeah. things. Yeah. And it's so easy. Well, before you had to go to the library. That's right. Yeah. You had to, you had to look it up. Sometimes, you know, if you, if you had your local library, wouldn't even have the right source. So you had to, to, to spend more effort to find it. I should say that that, uh, it's called a piacere is what it is. That, that, that's the term. <laughs> yes. That particular marking came from me. Oh, wow. That's hilarious. Yeah. Yeah. There, there. What an embarrassing story to admit in, in front of you. <laughs> I know. I know. No, no, no. It's fine. Uh, I mean, uh, Carter loved it, it, it Italian, the Italian language. Yes. So he, as you know, is sort of being in the tradition of, of uh, classical music where, you know, composers, uh, will generally write their markings in Italian. He, he loved to do that himself. So, uh, rather than, you know, saying sort of as you wish or, or free tempo or something like that, I, we, we decided on a piacere at that point. Mm. And, uh, the reason for that was when he came to that place, he had the idea that this would be quasi cadenza. Yes. You it see, feels that way. but it wasn't written that way. But if you, if you write kind of cadenza or something, then it becomes a little too big a deal. Yes. Yeah. So we were, we were thinking together and I suggested a piacere for that. And he thought, oh, good. And he wrote it down and that term <laughs> put in the, was put in the music. The one thing that is, is missing from the edition is at the end of those triplets, which, uh, often are played very fast, I must admit. I probably play them fast, maybe too fast, but uh, they don't have to be at all. They should be played in, in a kind of freeway. At the end of that, there should be a tempo primo marking, and that was never put into the edition. Mm. You see, so that if, you're, if you're, you're free, then you go back to the tempo at that point. Yes. Yes, that's a, and there are a couple spots like that in the piece. Yeah, we should which, have made this more clear at the beginning for those who aren't aware, but this piece was, of course, written for, you mentioned Ludislavsky's uh, 80th birthday, but you are the clarinetist who who worked with uh, Carter for the piece. That's right. Yeah. Yes, and I... If, if Premiered it. I, I have a, a very... Um, well, it's not unfortunate, but it, and it's not sad also, but it, let's, uh, let's just say interesting story involved with that because it was supposed to be pr premiered in Italy during a celebration of, of Ludoslavsky's 80th birthday, but uh, the, it, there, there's a multiphonic at the end mm -hmm. of the piece. And that multiphonic, even for... for uh, the French clarinet is written a little bit incorrectly because he got it from a book by Bruno Bertolozzi, 
who wrote the first book about multiphonics for wind instruments and the clarinet that he used for this was something which at that time, which was, uh, I guess, 1960s, something like that, was, uh, it, that was used in Italy, was, had a low E-flat. Ah. You see, that, that's pretty much disappeared. Written E-flat. But, yes, written, I mean, it, it could play the low written E-flat, yes. yes. Yeah. So it had the extra key for that. And so Italians would often play the uh, A clarinet uh, works on B flat clarinet because they had that extra half step lower. Mm. So anyway, these multiphonics included that, that key and, and so Carter's fingering included that low E flat, which in fact you don't need for this multiphonic at all. But for this performance, in 1993 in Italy, the clarinetist who will remain nameless played, who was played a German instrument. He said that, no, this fingering doesn't work. So I cannot play. No. Yeah. So, uh, cause it doesn't work on the German clarinet. So Carter called me up and he was very upset because he said that he didn't realize that you, you couldn't play this multiphonic on a German clarinet and he didn't want to have to rewrite the entire composition so that he could write another multiphonic, which would work. Mm -hmm. You see, uh, now that's also interesting because that means of course that he didn't just pick the multiphonic out of the air and say, ah, this one will work, but it, it, it's very important in the structure of the piece that you have those two notes. Yes. But so those are the now, two characters kind of resolving at the in end. a certain sense. That's right. Yeah. yeah. But the, in, in the piece, if, if you notice carefully, you will see that there are many twelfths. Yes. And of course that's because the nature of the clarinet. And since we're, we're speaking with clarinets, everyone knows that the clarinet overblows at the twelfth. Now, this multiphonic that he chose was simply an F-sharp to the C-sharp a twelfth above. So, in a certain sense, it has to work because that's part of the acoustical structure of the clarinet. Yeah, it's happening kind of all the time whether we like it or not. Exactly right. So, that when he, when he told me that, I, the first thing I told him was, no, it has to work on a German instrument. And now I know the, the uh, German system well enough that I could have told him immediately how to, how to rewrite the fingering for that. But at, at the time I wasn't sure. So uh, I, I was leaving for Japan just then. So in Japan, when I got there, I borrowed a German instrument. Actually, I should say first, I tried it on, on uh, my five key clarinet from the classical period worked perfectly. Hmm. Of course, because it's a 12th. Yeah. You see. So then I went to, to when I went to Japan, I uh, was able to, to get a, a Yamaha German clarinet, German system instrument and sort of experiment with it. And I immediately found that you just change one finger, the first, the first finger on the left hand, 
You just change from the second finger to the first finger, and it works perfectly. Well, and this goes back to, you know, you mentioned at the beginning the, the importance of curiosity and, and uh, Egg, you know, music. Exactly. And look at the opportunity that was kind of gone away for this other clarinetist, I mean, over a simple note. That's right. But you know? for me, what that meant is that that was supposed to be the premiere in Italy, but since that, in fact, didn't happen, I actually gave the premiere of the piece. Interesting. Well, the world premiere, yeah, in Japan. This The November 10th concert is uh, something that I've wanted to do for a long time, which was uh, compare the music of Max Rager and Robert Schumann. Mm -hmm. And Rager, of course, is known to be this arch intellectual. In, in a certain way, the composer, so if you put his name on the program, everybody runs away. <laughs> In a sense, and I, w I want to try to dispel that impression. So you put Schumann there to make sure they still come. Or <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, well, I should have put Mozart there. Then, of course, that'd be one that come to the concert. And then, then make Rager in the very beginning so that they have to stay. But, uh, that's what often is done with programs. No, but to, to, to show, in a certain way, the similarity of their music. And Turning into the circle Rager, concept again, or comes back on its ex Exactly right. Mm -hmm. How Rager's music, uh, even though is known to be sort of intellectually rigorous and, and dry, is not at all that way. Mm -hmm. And uh, how Schumann's music, which is very emotional, uh, is also incredibly intellectually rigorous. Mm-hmm and how the two go together and support each other, you see. And with Rager, the, uh, I'm also, I also with these uh, series, I, I give a short lecture in the beginning, sort of elaborating on the theme of each of these uh, concerts. So with Rager, one, one thing important to realize is he was maybe thought of as uh, very intellectual and very dry, but he was always drunk. Always drunk? Yeah. Oh. He was... <laughs> like literally drunk? Literally drunk. He was... And I really mean that. He was... He loved alcohol. He loved to overeat. He was also had a tremendous sense of humor. He was a kind of larger-than-life figure. And... Uh, his music seems intellectual simply because he had no problem writing complex counterpoint. For him, that was very easy. So he would do that. But if we see that that was only just a means to an emotional end, then we can look at his music and actually perform his music in a very different way. Mm -hmm. And we can find the emotional profundity of his work. And that's why I uh, put Schumann also there, because Schumann's music has this great emotional immediacy. And I'm hoping 
to actually by putting them together, showing how Rager can have this emotional immediacy with the right kind of performance. So I can't help but ask this might come across as a silly question and I, I mean it only half seriously but um so given his love of sort of food and drink has the menu for that concert been sort of planned about around some of his favorite dishes or anything like that oh that's funny i think that it, uh, a little bit will be planned but basically <laughs> you know if you look at what what <laughs> we ate it's so heavy <laughs> that i i don't think people today will will uh appreciate that so much <laughs> not advisable that's right <laughs> yes yeah, so i think the, too much cholesterol <laughs> so we talked a little about the old and new concert the emotional intellect one um the carter and the hidden masterpieces i think the only one we haven't touched on is the celebrating wins is there that's well, right yeah let's talk about that one a little bit okay well it's this is the new york woodwind quartet is uh, the group that i've been in for many years uh, it's a, it's the oldest surviving woodwind quintet probably in the world. Uh, so like longest running, you mean? Yes, yes. It's It will be running more than 75 years. Wow. So, uh, although none of us have been in it that long. Yeah, obviously the members have uh, rotated. Yeah, of course, of course. <laughs> I'm being facetious, but yeah. but uh, some of us. I mean, I I've been in easily 25 years, so that's so wow. it's long time we've been in, and uh, it's a great ensemble, and I think that I want to, as the series goes on, showcase wind music and woodwind music more and more because there are so many uh, chamber music series where the emphasis is on strings all the time. Yes. And occasionally you have a tiny bit of a, you know, a smattering of winds. But to, to show how both winds and mixed chamber music is uh, really very significant, very beautiful, and uh, very worthwhile listening to. I love some of the repertoire for, for uh, wood quintet. Yes, and uh, well, pieces like the the second quintet of Elliot Carter are quite remarkable for wins. That's uh, uh, a piece he wrote for us in in two thousand and eleven, I believe. Mm -hmm. This is he was. Uh, no, wait a second. No, two thousand and nine. He was 101 years old when he wrote it. Wow. And I think he finished it on his 101st birthday. Not bad. Birthday present to That's himself on that something. one. <laughs> That's right, exactly. Yeah. We will do also some uh, arrangements that our, our uh, horn player has done, William Purvis. He's a mm -hmm. wonderful arranger, and he's arranged some madrigals of Monteverdi and Gesualdo uh, for Woodwind Quintet. And one thing about uh, Woodwind Quintet is that I think that arrangements are a significant part of the repertoire. Yes. And there are arrangements 
that we can do which actually highlight the quintet in, in a wonderful way. And these madrigals are, are that way because they both are very homogeneous and at the same time the lines are very individual. And that's exactly what a woodwind quintet is. I think that the most interesting thing about a woodwind quintet is the, the inclusion of the French horn. But of course, there's a very val- valid reason for that. And for some of the younger people listening, I'm not sure if they would even really be aware of that. But uh, can you talk about that a little bit as far as the, yes. the, the French horn and its inclusion and how it adds to the, sure. the quintet? Sure. Uh, I should also just first mention about the flute, which is nowadays generally not made of wood. But in early times, of course, was. Of course. <laughs> yeah. Uh, there are people returning to wood now in the flute. That's, that's an interesting development. But the French horn is included in the woodwind quintet for also an historical reason. So in the, you look at earliest classical uh, orchestrations and you see that they include oboes, French horns, and bassoons. Mm -hmm. So the French horn was always thought of more in that kind of choir than in the brass group. And you had trumpets and trombones in early music were always different. And often the uh, trumpet players, trombone players also, like the timpani or the drums or they were itinerant musicians so if we uh, go to the music of Haydn for instance who uh, was in residence he lived in Esterhazy and and composed there at an orchestra and chamber ensembles there you will see that there are versions of some of his symphonies both with trumpets and timpani and without because when the, the trumpets and timpani would come to Esterhazy, he would say, okay, great, now I can include them. And when they were not there, he would not have them there, but he always had French horns. So the French horns were considered more in the, the family of woodwinds, even though they were brass instruments. And I think that has to do with the fact that the sound of the French horn can actually blend instruments together very well. Yes. I often think of the French horn as kind of the clarinet of the brass. <laughs> That's for sure. That's right. And I mentioned oboes there. And of course, the clarinet was a little bit a little bit of a latecomer. Mm-hmm. So when the clarinets came, you uh, the clarinet was, of course, adopted. So that. Now, before the woodwind quintet, it's... Uh, although uh, they were around at the same time, but it was also predated, were ensembles called harmony ensembles. And the genre was called harmony musique. And those would be, uh, for instance, groups of uh, two clarinets, two French horns, two bassoons, and then you would have a contrabassoon or bass added to that. Or could be just, instead of clarinets, oboes, or you add the oboes to the clarinets and you have this octet, or you can even call it a nonet because you have the the bass there. Mm -hmm. And then there are larger ensembles that could grow from that. The most famous, of course, is the Grand Partita of Mozart, uh, which 
is for 13 players, and there you have two oboes, two clarinets, two basset horns, uh, two bassoons, four French horns, and one bass. See, so again, you have one bass in this to, to uh, emphasize and to support the bass line there. So you see, even in the early wind groups, which predate the woodwind quintet, you see that the French horn is always there. And of course, this even st- extends to the many or most modern orchestras have the French horns sitting with the woodwinds. For sure. Exactly yeah. right. Yeah. It's interesting. That, yeah. Which I works out very well, do. actually, for orchestras, because then you sort of have the, the section. They often, you know, assemble a quartet or sorry, a quintet of some kind. Exactly. And, uh, get a chance to play chamber music as well. That's right. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So there's been something on the tip of my tongue for a while I wanted to ask you, and that is that you've got so much experience. You mentioned uh, the, the basset horn a minute ago, but you have a lot of experience playing these different period instruments um, of the clarinet. And I'm wondering, given your your, your knowledge of, of all these, and, and you were mentioning some very interesting things about the Mozart instrument, for example, how what are some things that someone who has not had the chance to play many of these instruments would be surprised by? And and do you think that it's something that people should have the chance to explore more? Well, first I should say that I definitely think that people should have a chance to explore these instruments. As I mentioned early, they give you information. I don't feel that we are obligated to play uh, pieces of particular period on a particular instrument. And uh, in any case, that becomes very uh, complicated mm-hmm. because we look back in music history and we say, here's one period, here's another period, another period, but everything was actually always in flux. So you, people were playing on different instruments at, at different times. And even the modern clarinet, the, the, our Berm system instrument, dates to 1839. So in a certain sense, our modern instrument is a period instrument or an historical instrument. Yes, yeah. You, you know, the difference, if you look at the, the instrument from 1839 and you look at a modern instrument, just, you know, by a quick perusal, you will not see much difference at all. No. Uh, and the differences between these instruments have more to do with little details, with the mouthpiece, with the design of the barrel, with, you know, things like that. And also what's interesting about the, the Berm instrument is you look in the 19th century, you see how instrument makers made them more complicated put more keys on, and now in the 20th century, they took them off. Sorry. <laughs> that yes. way, because the, the the basic instrument is the most stable one. Yes. Of course, you're talking you about see. things like the articulated G-sharp and all that. Exactly right. Yeah. All those those things, yes. They're, you know, Buffet at one time made a, uh, on the left-hand middle uh, note, which would, would play an, an E or an A, I put a what's called a donut key mm-hmm. on that, so you could play a B flat like on a German instrument with just the left hand first and third fingers. 
Oh, I see. Yeah. You see. And that, you know, lasted a few years and then was, was taken off. But this is, all these things are interesting, but, uh, it's nice to experience period instruments. And, uh, also it's a good idea when you're playing a modern instrument, not only because you gain knowledge, but because in order to play the early instruments, you can't play with tons of jaw pressure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So now we're getting a little bit into the technique of the clarinet, but many modern players play with a lot of jaw pressure, and that uh, creates several problems. It creates problems of intonation, it problems of response, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, now you go to the old instruments, and they just say no if you try to do that. Yeah. So you have to play with a more uh, sense of, of airflow and the more open kind of embouchure, generally. And then you apply that to your modern instrument and you find that you are able to not only play better in tune, but to play your different registers more fluently, so much becomes easier. So I think that even for fluency on modern instruments, being able to uh, experience old instruments is actually important. You know, it's interesting you say this because I find that a lot of players, um, myself included, we were kind of brought up in a system of very hard read, very high pressure, very firm amateur, and many people are reverting. They're they're using a softer read with a much more relaxed um, playing experience. And uh, even the new mouthpiece makers, like I'm interviewing Brad Bain very soon. I'm not sure if you're familiar with him. Um, of course. But you, you, yeah, so, so he's designing, his philosophy is totally around less pressure um right more easy blowing kind of relaxing and 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 playing like that you say you're familiar with bain are you using his mouthpieces no i don't use his mouthpieces but i do know know him Mm -hmm. and i respect him very much absolutely yeah he's making some wonderful wonderful things yeah um so one quick question i love how you mentioned also that the, the the clarinet we're currently playing is a period instrument because i also feel that way and i think that it makes a lot of sense um you know, even if it is new, it's designed on something a little bit older. Your clarinet that you uh, are pictured in your biography picture that I've received here, it's kind of a brown with gold keys. I know you have several more instruments, obviously, but what's right. the story behind that one? And, and does it have uh, a, an interesting story? Well, I'm, I'm not uh, sure which of the instruments, which of the photos you're, you're looking at. But <laughs> in any case, the basically I'm, I'm playing now on instruments which are made by a maker in Bomberg, Germany. His name is Jochen Sigelka. Mm-hmm. And we've been working together since 2005. Uh, it started out with him making uh, copies of Richard Mühlfeld's instrument, his Ottensteiner clarinets. It uh, was played by Richard Mühlfeld, who was the friend of Brahms. And then uh, he's made different historical instruments for me. And I had the idea, I wanted to have an instrument, modern instrument, that also had 
attributes of the old instruments that I was playing. And to do that, I thought it would be great to have a modern instrument, modern berm-type instrument, made from boxwood. Hmm. So it is boxwood. I was going to ask, it looks like boxwood. Yes. It is boxwood. So this is definitely boxwood. And uh, so he made these instruments for me, and they are based on my old R13 buffet clarinets, which I've been playing on since 19, the January of 1986. Down to the month. <laughs> yes, that's right. That's right. I remember carefully because I was playing all the earlier instruments, which were called S1 mm-hmm, yeah. uh, by buffet, uh, and I left them in a taxi. Oh. <laughs> so I had to go quickly. At that time, uh, the the person who was making my mouthpiece then was his name was David Height. Oh wow! Who, you know, he was living at that time in New Jersey, and so I called him up hysterical, and and he, he had just uh, gotten several instruments from France, which he had picked out and were really great instruments. So I went and I tr- I, tr- I tried them and got what I I liked uh, from him. And I did actually uh, get the uh, my older instruments back, but uh, from the the guy that from the taxi driver finally he was looking for me. I was looking for him, so it was an honest fellow uh, in, who who drove the taxi. But by that time, uh, I had already been playing for a little while these new instruments. I loved the new ones so much that I switched to them. So I played those from 1986 and then uh, Jochen Sigelka uh, measured them because at that time he had made modern German instruments, uh, system instruments, but he had not made French system instruments. Uh, so this was a, a very interesting uh, experiment for him in a certain way. So he measured them and uh, then made several prototypes, and it took a good two years to finally design the instrument and uh, produce it in boxwood. And so uh, when I, I got the final instrument, I, these both the sets, A and B flat, these are fantastic clarinets, and uh, they have become uh, his what he calls his 1000 series. And they're commercially so they are, available now? So they are commercially available, and you can get them in Grenadilla or in Boxwood or now in a wood called Mopane. Mm, yes. And Mopane is, is very interesting wood that he, he started experimenting with because, of course, uh, Grenadilla is now endangered. Yes, yeah. So that you... it. Uh, we really need to have a, another source of wood, which then we, uh, people can start using in a responsible way, sort of sustainable way. Um, and so he, he, he thought to try Mopane, and it's a very interesting wood, which had not been used for instruments, uh, not been used for much of anything, I believe, but it's very beautiful. The problem with Mopane is that it, it changes a lot. Yes. So, 
So when he started to make the instrument from Opane, it took him a good year to make the instrument, even though by this time he, he didn't have to experiment with design. He, you know, the design was very much set for that. But just because he, he you know, you drill a hole and then you have to leave it. You do this. And then even after I got the instruments for by Mupane, uh, it took a good four years for the instrument to really come into its own. So you have the this wood and the boxwood? Yes. Oh. You know, I have many of his clarinets, I have to say. <laughs> and this is from I have Grenadilla instruments also. And we're working now on a quarter tone clarinet. Oh wow. Very it's, interesting. Uh, um, yeah. So it's, another question uh, about this, I notice you play with the gold keys. Is this an aesthetic choice or uh, the feel of it or in some other reason? This was completely uh, Sigalka's choice. Oh, okay. I, I really had nothing to do with it. He, when, when, he had the, when he made the uh, boxwood instrument, he thought that gold made sense. Mm-hmm. Compliments it well. And, I think it does complement it well. And what's interesting is that everything you, you put on the instrument changes the sound to some degree. Mm-hmm. So the gold does affect the sound, maybe gives it a little less uh, brightness. Interesting. A little more, more body to the sound that, than silver would have. Well, it's but becoming he, he a will. new thing now. I mean, a lot of manufacturers, even some of the very larger ones, like like Buffet, are experimenting with rose gold and and gold that's right. more commercially available. So it's an interesting trend. That's right. It is. Yes. Yes. I have to say that uh, someone like Sigelka was one of the first to actually do that. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that the Buffet company is been copying him to a certain extent. <laughs> I think a lot but, of the manufacturers are, are uh, well, they're getting inspiration from each other. Let's put it that way. That's right. But I think this is only good. Yes. It's very good. I think it's yeah. very good. Yeah. Well, were you at Clarinet Fest this summer? No, I wasn't. Oh, okay. I, yeah. It would have been great to have a chance to meet out there, but I did notice yeah. that a lot of the manufacturers, even the smaller ones and the bigger ones, they all seem to have a lot more compelling choice for the um the clarinetist these days and and you mentioned you think that that's a good thing um but there are some people who think this is a bad thing do you think this is simply progress that we can't stop well i think this is first of all something we cannot stop yeah and uh uh, uh i think it, it basically it's a good thing although the the only problem is that some some times there's too much choice yes yeah for ways and uh, you you have to you know separate choice from hype in a certain sense. And like some and of the people listening are students, and and so how can they decide whether the money or their time is best spent figuring out between different types of plating for their key work or or practicing or something like that? I mean, where's the limit, and and what should people watch out for? Right. Well, most important thing is practicing. You know, that's you you. Equipment is not going to uh, be a substitute for learning to play very well. And if you learn to play very well, then you can make a better, more informed choice about what kind of instrument you should play. 
Absolutely. And I often tell this to my students, they want to upgrade because they've been practicing for several years and, and they say to me, well, which clinic should I get to, you know, get to the next level? And it's like, well, in many ways, when I was younger, I feel like I chose my clarinet too soon. I wish I had almost finished my degree before deciding on a, a clarinet for myself because you, you do so much. You do know so much more about what you want in an instrument. So it's very, very wise. I think that's I think that's very true. You know, you know, I know that uh, that in Asia, often there's a there's a lot of prestige involved in in in, you know, owning and purchasing a kind of fancy instrument, whether it's a Tosca or a Divine or, or you know, new Selmer is whatever it is. Uh, and I see many uh, students who, you know, are even just beginning with these very fancy clarinets, some of them which are not very good, in fact. And I'm thinking, oh, what a shame. They, did, they don't need that instrument. And what they, what they needed was just sort of a good basic clarinet uh, with decent intonation. And then they can sort of grow into a more fancy clarinet. And they will understand what is actually uh, good and what's not good. Absolutely. So I think you've shared some incredibly uh, interesting stories with me today on the podcast. I do want to thank you for coming on the show. Is there anything else you'd like to add before we before we wrap up? And hopefully we can reconnect in the spring when your annotated version of the Mozart concerto comes out. Yes. Well, all I would like to add is I just want to thank you so much for this interview and for actually having these podcasts, which I think are uh, a wonderful uh, resource and a wonderful opportunity for uh, people all over the world who are interested in the clarinet to to learn more about it. And I think your your questions are just right on. I'm very uh, impressed. Oh, well, thank you thank so much. You. I really appreciate that. And I'm, I'm happy to say that people are listening now, according to the stats anyways, in around 84 countries around the world. So this will be Excellent. heard all over the place. And I, I do hope that this also leads to the success of your concert series or not leads to but of course it will be successful on its own but contributes to the the success of your concert series thank you so much if anyone's interested as we mentioned before you can check out more about the concerts at www.waconcertseries.com and of course i'll be putting the the show notes for this episode at www.clarinet.com thanks for coming on the show today charles thank you listening to this episode of the Clarinet Podcast. Don't forget that there's an extended version of today's conversation with Charles Nydick available exclusively for Patreon Gold supporters as a thank you for allowing me to produce the show every single week. 
If you'd like to learn how you can support the podcast, please head to www.clarineat.com Patreon. Be sure to tune in next time for a conversation with the wonderful Brad Bain about his incredible mouthpieces, barrels, and actually his philosophy on all sorts of elements of clarinet playing. To be eligible to receive giveaways mentioned on the podcast and to receive free updates, coupons, and more, join our mailing list. Go to clarinet.com, scroll all the way to the bottom, and click on the subscribe button. Thank you again so much for listening, and I look forward to seeing you next week. Sanding, shaping, balancing. For centuries, mastering your instrument meant mastering these crafts too. But now, D'Addario is refining craftsmanship for the 21st century by refining their reeds and mouthpieces with the world's most innovative techniques, so you can spend less time sanding, shaping, and balancing, and more time perfecting your own craft. To learn more about the new era of craftsmanship from D'Addario Woodwinds, visit daddario.com woodwinds.